Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today we have a very special guest. He is a professor of sociology and he is going to talk specifically about his research in the field, soft sciences and colleges, and some of the moral biases that he finds that folks in his field bring to their research and their studies. Now, this material was largely over my head. And so as a interviewer, I wanted to give Mark as much time as he needed to discuss. So it's a, it's a long episode. Mark talks very quickly and he is is clearly very well educated on this topic. We have two other guests with us. Chris Shelton, who's been on this podcast before. He is a podcaster and does the Sensibly Speaking podcast. And then Greg Duros, which who was a member of the Secular Hub for a while and a very close friend of Mark's and was the reason why we were able to get him on the show. So if you're interested in the soft sciences, sociology, anthropology, economics, and so on, and want to understand more about the kinds of research folks are doing in those fields, listen in, because it's about to get real. I'm Paul with the Secular Hubcast. I'm Greg uh, with the Secular Hubcast. I am Chris uh, from the Sensibly Speaking podcast, as well as the Hubcast here, because I'm a board of Absolutely. Extra special guest. And I'm Mark. I'm a professor of sociology at Seton Hall University. Wonderful, and welcome. And we're specifically here to talk to you, Mark. We wanted to have a sort of Q&A about what you're working on, some of the things that you're an expert. Is, should I say you're an expert in this, like sociology, the crisis of I do my best. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But I know, Greg, specifically, you had a couple of things that you wanted to go over as far as how you wanted this conversation to go. You wanted some things to be brought to light for Hub members, some of the issues that sociology is is seeing right now in the field, and then also some of the economics behind that. Yeah, I was thinking we could just uh, bring up uh, Mark's general research, which looks at uh, academia in general, various fields within academia, and the moral biases within academia that, you know, professors bring to their research. So, Mark, maybe you want to just kind of uh, generally talk about the kind of research you do. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Uh, yeah, so as Greg said, I, I, my colleagues and I have been looking at a number of different social science fields, and we're carrying out these large surveys, and we're really going uh, to where the controversies are. So, we go to controversies in anthropology, sociology, economics, uh, with an eye to how the underlying moral sensibilities, which we believe manifest in their political orientations, turn out to be really a, a really good predictor of where a social scientist will stand on a controversy in their field. So, for example, if you you know that an economist identifies as liberal or even radical, you can make really decent guess about how they're going to stand on certain empirical questions regarding, you know, certain kind of economic policy versus an economist who calls himself or herself conservative or libertarian. Okay. So, so we look at that, we examine those relationships, and then we also bring in a, th- a theory called moral foundations, which I can go into a little later if you'd like. But, but Mark, in these situations, though, so you're, in your economist example, they're bringing sort of their ideas around policy, but saying this is rooted in, in facts and, and, and science, right? And But what you're trying to say is behind that layer, there's also some moral biases. Is that correct? Yeah. When, you, when we're dealing with clusters of questions that tap moral emotions, kind of sensitive controversies, what we see is that debates within social science are not simply a question of you know intellectual disagreement about the veracity of the evidence. Oftentimes, these very sensitive controversies tap into underlying moral emotions. And what we see, I saw it most dramatically in my more recent study, 
of sociologists, what we see is a tendency for people to invest their emotional, you know, their emotions, their sense of self, uh, tend to police certain kinds of claims if it runs against the current of their shared emotions. You know, not necessarily doing this consciously, but from the point of view of, tr- of scientific advance, it's a problem. So could you give some examples? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. So I'm, I have open here my latest piece in, uh, among anthropologists. So just a very, very simple example. There's a, a highly controversial claim that is completely accepted among uh, evolutionary psychologists. And it's the claim that through human evolution, men have evolved a greater tendency toward sexual variety. So kind of instinct for more sexual variety than women do. And that women, for reasons that have deep evolutionary roots, tend to be choosier because the consequences of a mate choice will have greater significance for them because they can only have one child and it needs to be protected. One child at a time. At a time, yeah. Yeah. Generally. Um, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So the argument by evolutionary psychology is that this has an evolved instinctual basis. Now, if you ask... And are they saying that women are more monogamous? Is that what they're saying? No, because there's lots of contexts where women will engage in kind of extra pair copulations and things like that. So they're saying that women are just more picky. That exactly. men are a little less picky when it comes to who they mate with and women are a little more picky. Is well, that right? And, and it's, it's almost controversial to frame it in a certain way. There's an instinct, a greater instinct for variety among men. It doesn't mean they're not capable of significant commitment, which they are, to long-term relationships. I like to uh, compare, many evolutionary psychologists will compare it to like, we, I, I'm a chocolate fanatic and I, I could, I'll eat like an ice cream cake and I can't stop. So uh-huh. I have to control, like chocolate chip cookies are my weakness, right? Oh, so yeah. That's an instinct that I have. That there's good grounds to believe our, our uh, attraction to sugar, salty food, and fatty foods has an evolutionary foundation. It doesn't sure. mean I'm subject to it. I have to resign myself to it. Matter of fact, my life largely rejects it. So just because men have evolved a greater tendency toward sexual variety doesn't mean they're literally more promiscuous and women are literally more monogamous. It's just for long-term mating purposes, the underlying instinctual apparatus of men and women tend to, on average, differ in this regard, with women more concerned about indi- indicators of long-term commitment, kind of separating the cads from the dads. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm not even defending this argument per se. We can talk about that. What I do in my work, rather than really take positions on various controversies, I just show how again and again and again, where scholars land on these questions ends up being predictable based on their political and moral sensibilities. And I find that really interesting. And sure. to the extent we become conscious of that, we have a better chance for the data to really be the thing that adjudicates the claims rather than so kind of moral In the process. anthropologist case... Yeah, let me give you the example here. So on that question, I have to find it here... So so among radical anthropologists, those who call themselves radical, it's not a small percentage, by the way, 9% think it's plausible. So I don't even ask them if they think it's true. Just it's not even, you know, 9% think it's plausible. Among liberals, so they call Wait, themselves- Wait, what's plausible? That Sorry. men have evolved tendency oh, to- Oh, greater, pardon me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sexual variety. Women. Liberals, uh, 33% find that plausible. And then moderate anthropologists, 36%. So that kind of stairway, where you go from liberals to moderates, again and again across all of my surveys, carries out along most- questions. So what does it mean? Something's going on. This political identity is linking to certain interpretive communities or subgroups within fields. And that's where the sort of moral foundations come in. But I don't know, maybe Greg was interested or you have a few more examples. I don't know. I could well, share let me, some. But... I, I, go ahead, I, Chris. I wanted to ask, is this a matter of how does one go about testing or checking data like this for correlation not being caused? Or is that the arc? It's an interesting correlation, but it doesn't necessarily lead causation. You know, that because they're liberal, they think they will defend this argument? Or is it just, oh, it just so happens that li- a number of liberals happen to agree on this particular issue because it happens to align with the rest of theirs? I don't know if that's yeah, no, a clear-cut it, question, but... No, it makes complete sense. It's one of the challenges dealing with any kind of theory, like evolutionary theory, where we don't have a time machine, we can't do experiments. So sometimes it's called you make inferences to the best explanation. They use that phrase sometimes. It's like, why does it happen again and again and again and again in so many different settings? And it, it goes a little further than that. I mean, it, 
it also coincides with how left liberal moral sensibilities are being defined in uh, moral foundations theory. Um, there's a stereotype about liberals. It's kind of bleeding heart stereotype. And it turns out there's a lot of data to support that, that, that liberals are more likely to be empathetic. They're triggered by indicators of any kind of attack to a vulnerable group. You see like someone beating up a baby seal or something. It's just like outrage. And um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to say liberals are better. That's just a, a trigger that hits them harder than on the other end of the, of the, of the spectrum. They also tend to be much less distrustful of authority figures, especially if there's any hint of being a bully. So a kind of anti-authoritarian tendency. Uh, on average, um, we can certainly talk, um, and many people are, there's a lot of attention today about kind of left-wing social justice authoritarians, and that's an interesting topic we can touch on a little bit later if you'd like. Sure. But on the whole, I think there's an anti-authoritarian tendency among leftists. So how could this relate to these interpretations? Well, if you start talking about men and women being biologically different in meaningful ways, that's very, very sensitive. On another a survey, the more recent one among sociologists, uh, we ask the question about whether distribution in work roles between men and women could have a partially biological component. There's mountains of evidence to suggest that women on the whole tend to gravitate to more fields where people are involved than men. And this is very sensitive. Um, vast majority of sociologists agree that socialization, how you're brought up, is critically important, as is sexism. You have men in positions of power who don't welcome women into the upper echelons of power. What we were asking in the study was, those are very, very important. Could it be possible, though, that in this explanatory cocktail, there's also this evolved biological tendency where women, to the extent they played a more nurturant role, more domestic role, even going into deep history, mediating conflicts within groups, to the extent men were further away from the nest, and in a sort of stereotypical hunting scenario, could it be the case that that plays a role in why we see this data unfold? Again, we're not making the case and saying we know this to be true, but why couldn't that be plausible or could it be plausible? And when we look at that question, we find again and again, the liberals and radicals, absolutely not. You know, as a matter of fact, they shamed us. They said, how dare you bring up this topic? Everyone knows this is cultural. There is no biological component. You know, they compared it. People are suggesting it's like eugenics or something. Where it, it, oftentimes when you... Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of emotion. Sorry, but I just kind of pipe in on that because it, it, it sounds to me prejudicial on the from a science point of view to have an opinion about something and then to use that opinion as a scientist to close off an entire area of research, entire area of potential discovery because you just happen to know that it's not that way. Um, yeah, I mean, the, is the crisis really here that people feel a certain way is correct and that's what they're saying is correct because that's how they feel and that's not what the evidence ferrets out? Is that when I'm reading this about uh, one of these, uh, you know, introduction to discipline in crisis. This is one of the articles that you wrote. Is that really the crisis in sociology? Is that the people that are studying in the field, the people that are supposed to be doing as hard a science as sociology can be, are bringing this bias in and saying, well, it can't be that. Even though the data says that, it can't be that. And that's the crisis? Yeah, I think that I wanted to I wanted to frame it this way. I think that the concern, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, the concern coming from sociology, or so many sociologists, is that, you know, our scientific work and our publications have effect on real lives. So if we say something in our science, you know, that indicates something, that's going to have an effect on real life. And I think the concern probably among these um, social scientists is that if we say there's sex differences in careers people choose, 
then that could somehow reinforce and reify patriarchy and sec- real sexism, you know, that women feel. I mean, is that that's the fear, right? And that's what's the trigger. I Absolutely. I, I would only add to that that this is also kind of visceral. So it's this feeling of, you know, there's this inequality in the world, which is inherently perceived as unjust. And any theoretical formulation or any even hypothesis that would suggest any biological, which is perceived to be as unchanging, which itself, by the way, is a problem. I just gave you the example of eating a chocolate chip cookie. That's biological, yet I resist them. So, but there's this tendency to believe and feel that, and Greg's exactly right, that if, if you entertain these ideas, you're opening the door to legitimizing patriarchy, social roles and domination, racial ethnic hierarchies and the like. So again, my point is not to say I'm smart and I'm the one who sees the truth and you're biased and hopelessly mired in your emotion. Um, I like to think because I've been thinking about this for a long time and studying a lot of literature in it that I have maintained a, a greater ability than when I was young. I was much more young and much more, uh, much more tribal, pardon me, when I was young and in graduate school. I, I mechanically rejected these ideas as well. So it, it was a it was a hard process of personal transformation coming to recognize my own left-wing moral intuitions nudging me away from certain kinds of empirical claims. And recognizing that makes me more sensitive when I talk to people who come from a different standpoint. So that being said, are there biological differences between men and women? I think the, again, these are, goes back to this question um, that Chris was raising. How do we test these sorts of things? We know that there's overwhelming differences. Like They've done massive numbers of interest inventories across countries to find out what women want to do, what men want to do. And again and again and again and again, women will choose, on average, I got to hit that really hard, on average, fields that are more people-oriented than men. Does that prove it's biological? I guess I'd have to say no, but you have to say reasonable people dealing with any historical method run into the difficulty, even, even in the field of history. You can't really test. We can't go back to the roots of the Civil War, right? So you just have to appeal to human reason, appeal to our capacity to understand how our, our species evolved, recognize the roles that men and women have played historically in the past, and come up with trying to make sense of the everyday observations that we see. And the irony of this is that everyday people that are non-academics are much more inclined to, well, yeah, of course, there's these differences. And you know, I was realizing when I'm in graduate school and later on talking to everyday people going, wow, am I, am I indoctrinated? And I, I came to the conclusion I probably am. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, because I'm, and part of it too, part of the story, which I haven't touched on, is there's a social part that's crucial. You gravitate consciously or otherwise toward people who have the same moral intuitions. And when you're in that echo chamber, you don't know it. And if you're not talking to somebody who has a different point of view, the tribal tendency for human beings to want to feel righteous in their shared morality is so great that I, I witnessed it and I indeed participated in it. This like shaming of people could even raise this possibility. You must be a hidden patriarch. Maybe you're unconsciously sexist. You don't even know it. Those sorts of arguments. When in reality, as scientists, we should be saying, what does the evidence suggest? What does it lead to? It's not going to, I don't think it's going to be black and white, capital T, like really, really d- truth, you know, determining this. But I think the evidence tends to point in this direction, but that's not really the point of our studies to take strong positions either way. Another theme in my uh, latest piece, and my colleagues, uh, Anthony Hainer and Ke- uh, Ken Kickham, we ask about questions um, of, of inner city poverty. We act, as I mentioned, we ask about distribution of roles and the economy between men and women. And there's this tendency where certain ideas are just verboten. So uh, we asked whether the old culture of poverty argument could play a small kind of component role in the in the entrenched poverty among the black community in inner cities. And uh, it just turns out you really can't, it can't, you can't really ask it. You're, you're, so we tried to say, well, couldn't this bad situation be... You being can't made? ask it because your colleagues are going to yell foul at you? Yeah, that it's... Yeah. First of all, they know it. And I got to put that in they'll quotes. Say, they'll say you're blaming the victim. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, so this couldn't be a cultural issue. Right. Yeah. It has to be... A structural... Something else. It a has structural to be power a issue. Socioeconomic structure that prevents them from achieving. Is that what... Because there's this collective instinct to protect vulnerable people. Yeah. Which is, a, you know, I'm not criticizing that. That's a noble thing. But from the point of view of 
science, though, it ends up precluding certain kinds of hypotheses, which might just indeed be important to the to the larger story. Because it could be both. It could be a mixture of both, and one component or other could be greater or less. But um, it could be there. Because it, what I find interesting is that on one hand, culture matters, and then on the other hand, if it goes against though some sort of moral beliefs, then culture doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. There, oh, there's a we cite someone. I don't have the exact quote in the top of my head, but we cite someone who says like, "Amazing that sociologists give overwhelming explanatory power to culture until it conflicts with the dominant narrative." Yeah. You know, and this one, no. And that's how you know there's some hypocrisy, right? When but again, they're citing to... it, citing it, citing it. Oh, but not that. <laughs> yeah, and I have to go. Not that. Not to example. make. Not to make. I'm not trying to make you feel bad for using the word no, hypocrisy. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Our, our, our goal is not to call out and say, "Oh, you're you're being a hypocrite or you're being inconsistent," just for the purpose of shaming them. It's to just say, "Guys, let's be aware, uh, guys and gals, let's be aware that we are a moral community, and these shared values blind us to potentially." Pl-. Again, we're asking if things are plausible. I mean, I'll give you just one because we're on the topic. So here's a question about solutions. So solutions to inner city poverty include some responsibility among the black community to address the problems of violence and out of wedlock births. And then radicals, 30% agree. Actually, this was an agree question. Yeah. And then liberals, 52% agree that solutions are going to involve some uh, agency or responsibility. And then 71% of moderates. So again. So is this, uh, a, is this in any way a, a, a disagreement about whether or not people have free will? Are you a free will yes or a free will no if I have person? To, if I have to choose a camp, I'm increasingly on the no camp on that. Okay. Yeah. And is that is that part of the of the sort of the essence of this disagreement saying that they don't have any personal responsibility oh, is that a good question. is that the folks that think that free will yeah. doesn't exist or is that the I spent an inordinate amount of time in graduate school pondering the question of free will cuz I'm sort of obsessed with it. Yeah, um but and it, it's interesting that you're making that connection because I haven't spelled that out in my head. Interesting. The, the spirit behind this question here is simply that people on the left with that we're protecting the vulnerable person in the inner city it's like no they don't have responsibility. This is a history of institutional racism. They have they're living in poverty. Their schools are a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, which, is, which is which is true. True. Yeah, Massive right. evidence. Massive for evidence for it. And then the, so then the question was, what's ironic about it though is, in context like that, wouldn't we expect certain kinds of what maybe you could call a maladaptive behaviors to emerge? I mean, you're living in an oppressed situation to expect that to elicit, you know, uh, certain kinds of uh, cultural practices that are most likely to lead to their to their you know success as defined by our society. One could reasonably say there could be some cultural consequences, but again, you can't because it, it's interpreted as well. You're giving them agency, and they have no agency. Going back to women's choice with their careers, it has to be sexism and how they're brought up and imposed on them. It can't they, be what they want to do. It can't be what they want to do, especially something that might have a biological and perceived to be unchangeable dimension, because then right. that means no matter what we did, we couldn't have gender equality across so, the board. So, like, what do you say to to somebody like Gad Sat or Jordan Peterson who says, "I want equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome"? Is that is that something that you're hearing in your colleagues that they're pushing for this equality? of outcome sort of narrative? I think because they're... Is that why they're, ne- because they're denying so, the possibility that it great, could be a biological yes, such a great difference? Point. Yeah, I think because they're so emotively committed to social equality that they therefore make this elementary mistake, which is if you see inequality, it must be discrimination. Right. And there can be other things involved. I mean, I, I don't remember who said it. It might be someone like a Gadsad who said, um, you know, is is the uh, basketball association anti-Semitic? And I, I don't say this in the spirit of facetiousness, but like, why, aren't there, why are there so few Jews? Why is there so many African-American. You mean playing basketball? Yeah, playing basketball. Is there anti-Semitism? Isn't it because they're short and uncoordinated? Well, but, it, but it's just to bring up this... You is, see that, the spe- is that joke not in, in... Is that in poor taste? I'm sorry. That's, I felt that... <laughs> I thought it was funny. I, I walked there with a little trepidation, which actually speaks to the very topic we're on. Notice how certain kinds of themes we have to walk on eggshells about because right. they can be very socially sensitive. But yeah. I don't think there's 
anti-Semitism leading to that disproportion, I would be inclined to go along the lines you're saying there, right? Yeah. So, but you can't just, because you're looking at inequality by racial and ethnic groups or by gender, mm -hmm. you can't jump to the conclusion that discrimination is the only explanatory variable. With gender roles, no doubt it is a variable. It certainly has major historical significance. But as we've moved along, increasingly modern society, I would argue it's probably becoming less salient. Socialization is still extremely important, no question about that. Um, but it seems to me biology is probably part of the mix, even though I don't really have an axe to grind in trying to argue that. I just think when we don't acknowledge it as even being plausible, we're opening the door to people who have a much, I would argue, less inviting uh, agenda that's that's sort of avidly patriarchal and would anchor it purely in biology, just like with culture of poverty. On the far right, they don't believe there's any social structural component. These are just lazy people, right, who don't want to work hard. Yeah, it's the, to you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap up. kind right, of so, so there's these mentality. dangerous positions out there. And if we're not willing to sort of try to see the world clearly, I like the phrase, put truth over tribe. If we're not able to sort of try to do that, we're going to lose a lot of people in society. And if we, sh if all we're doing is shaming people for even raising these questions, then we're just playing into the hands of those who have an agenda that I don't think is politically desirable. So Mark, um, I, I, I'm on the left. I've been on the left. I've been active in the left. Would you say you're in the left too? Is that yeah, where absolutely. you're coming from? Yeah. So you're looking for a more just and humane society, more equal society as well. Yes. So then how, if you're doing that, how did you, how do you, how do you approach your research then if that's your goal, you know, or that's, that's how you, that's one of your goals, right? As a human being on this planet, that that's the kind of world you want to live in. Less racism or no, no racism, no sexism. Um, how do you approach your research then with, you know, that in mind? Yeah. I mean, I think the spirit of it is to just look around us and see the degree and intensity of societal polarization, particularly ideological and political polarization. And I think if we recognize, let me just be personal about it. This isn't very scientific, but in my own trajectory of like, wow, I can't believe I was that biased. It, it did nudge me toward a kind of begrudging willingness to hear the other side a little more and say, if I'm capable of spending years parroting certain lines that I wasn't aware were a reflection of my moral community, then maybe they are too. And if they're at a different place than me, then maybe I need to understand where they're coming from and try to create common ground. So I'm not super optimistic about this. I know it might sound I, you know, quixotic, but that's sort of the spirit I, I bring into my research there. Yeah, I have uh, across the surveys a number of questions that directly address that. We ask, I don't, I don't have the data in front of me, but we ask people who argue or, or believe that there could be biological differences have a patriarchal agenda. You know, like and we're asking the social scientists if they believe that. So going along the lines, and it's as you'd expect, the radicals are more inclined to believe that and say they must. If you believe culture plays a role in inner city poverty, you must be ultimately wanting to shore up the racial, ethnic, you know, inequality in society or stratification system, right? So we definitely see that. I mean, the point I would stress again, going back to the underlying kind of hope, um, is that if, to the extent we become aware of it, the hope would be we'll do it less. And I'm a member of an organization called uh, Heterodox Academy, which uh, Jonathan Haidt, he's the... Can we mention Jonathan Haidt yet? Not yet. Yeah, Jonathan Haidt's a NYU psychologist who um, was the really major figure in developing a theory called Moral Foundations. And it just explains... has a number of different threads to it, but uh, it's, it's what I'm drawing from most heavily in all of this in terms of explaining controversies within social science fields. And he founded Heterodox Academy. And, and if I saw myself 10 years ago being part of an organization that believes we really have to bring more conservatives in academia, I, I probably would have fainted. <laughs> um, but that's where I am now. And the reason I'm there is not because I agree with conservatives. I don't. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually pretty far to the left. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not going to get to that better society solely through kind of intergroup anger and polarization. We're going to get to it conversation by conversation, which means you've got to find common ground. And therefore, you got to have people in an academic department that can not echo the party line, that can say, oh, maybe this is plausible. And then a student would be welcome to sort of investigate this. So that's kind of the idea behind it. You know? To what degree do you think that it is, because I've heard this narrative, and I, I, don't, I don't know how much this is based in, in reality or evidence, but to what degree do you think it is that 
the the young are generally more um, liberal and the educated, the highly educated are generally more liberal. So here we have institutions filled with highly educated folks and a bunch of young folks. Is it a really a wonder that they're liberal and not conservative in nature? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. But. I, I think Neil Gross wrote a book on this. I can't remember the title. And the conclusion um, was that it's mostly self-selection, that um, there's a psychological aspect called um, openness to experience studied by psychology, personality trait. And they find that people who end up you know, gravitating toward liberalism have more of it. And it just means people being interested in new and diverse ideas, open to contradictory information, more likely to tolerate ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, conservatives on the whole, cognitively, tend to be more inclined to like, well, there's, you know, with moral questions, for example, that's right and wrong. There's no situational ethics. Yeah, it's, it's gut, right? They go by their gut. Like, well, I just know that's wrong and they don't care what the evidence says. Yeah. And I would say, of course, when it comes to certain questions bearing on vulnerable groups, liberals go with their gut. That's yeah. No, I, mean. I was just going to say, yeah. that's the mirror image but, on their side you, on the on the right from what right. we're talking about on the left. Yeah. So, right. I'd like to add this because I think on your, one of your first papers on, soci- on sociologists uh, when you were studying sort of their beliefs, you, lo- you looked at their beliefs versus plausibility for biological explanations of behavior between sexes over time. And, in the, and if you compare it in the early 90s and you compare it now, they've actually, like the liberals and the left, have actually grown more open to it. They've actually changed and they're now more acceptance now than there was before. And I believe that actually echoes what Haidt found between liberals and conservatives is that liberals may take biases based on their moral intuitions, but they're more flexible and, and over time are more amenable to changing their views to, based on science, whereas conservatives have a harder time dealing with that. Is that? I think that is a fair. I think there's a psychological evidence to support that. Um, and then return to that too, if I could just go back to Paul's point, just to finish the thoughts. Yeah. Um, the gross book, I think, makes the case it's mostly self-selection. doesn't mean there's no discrimination occurring in academia, but um, and my experience in academia, I don't really see that much of it. It's the people you end up getting applying for your positions. Now, that said, I can imagine someone who has research that has uh, you know unpopular positions that could be interpreted in any way of blaming the victim or anything of the sort. I could see them being left out. And I would add that it's a complicated story because conscious discrimination is one thing. Like We're not going to welcome you because you're a conservative at any level of this. And then just the natural unfolding of people who share the same moral intuitions, excluding people from their community, which, and both can be involved. So yeah, I, th- I think you're, that's a really good point. It, it might have deep roots, but I, I don't think it dispels, going back to kind of thinking multifaceted in a multifaceted way, it doesn't dispel the psychological evidence that does uh, pretty overwhelmingly, if you're interested in this topic, there's a, uh, a psychologist, I believe also at NYU, named John Jost, and he's, he's outstanding. Just He did a massive meta-analysis recently of hundreds of studies with tens of thousands of people over many years, and it's just conservatives tend to be more, going back to Greg's point, more oriented to cognitive closure. They're less tolerant of ambiguity. You know, some of these methods might be a little hokey, but if you ask people questions like, you know, there's answers in this world. You know, people wishy-washy, constantly having to reflect back and forth, need to just understand things are true or false. Conservatives would be much more inclined to say, yeah, that's how it really is. So this tendency for liberals to cogitate and to deliberate, I was mentioning over lunch uh, today that there's that old saw, I don't know if anyone's heard it, but you know, a liberal is someone who doesn't even take his own position. <laughs> and that's something that would never be applied to a conservative. You know, conservatives stay the course. They, you know, they, 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 they go forward with what they believe. Liberals are much, much more inclined. And, and just so you don't think I'm celebrating liberalism, uh, there's a small effect where that suggests that liberals tend to be more neurotic, which could be a kind of, you know, less stability. Liberals are much less conscientious on average. These are averages. Uh-huh. So conservatives on the whole are much more organized, efficient, plan-oriented, detail-oriented. Well, so, we see that in our political parties easily. I mean, they march and to the poll and vote exactly the same way, whereas liberals are trying to figure out each point individually 
individually and which which politician best represents their little political view that they are most excited about. Whereas I think conservatives, they're just like, that's our guy. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. But we need that guy in there so we get our agenda pushed through. Yeah, with each side knowing, in quotes, <clears throat> that they're the morally righteous side. So just to touch again on what you brought up, Chris, because I think it was a really good point. And we see maybe some, you, you were saying, discrimination in schools against uh, conservatives. Is, is it really a case of discrimination as much as conservative thinking in general is kind of an old way of thinking? It's, it's this religious, first off, most of it is based in religiosity, which isn't an evidence-based tradition. It's a faith-based tradition. It's revelation, right? So it's first person. Um, it's my experience and you can't say I'm wrong type arguments, right? So it, it takes me back, what you were saying takes me back to like, you know, uh, a philosophy course that I took where we were talking about abortion. And the conservatives in the group were saying abortion's wrong and it is because I know it is, or it is because I say so, or it is because my book says so. And the liberals were saying, that's ridiculous. And here's why. And here's what the evidence actually ferrets out. So when you ferret out all that evidence, when you bring it out, on a, out onto the table and you actually present it, a conservative is going to feel silly because look at this pile of evidence that shows that they're wrong and all they can say is because I said so. So is that really discrimination or is it just the nature of a university where it's an evidence-based endeavor? It's to it's to raise awareness, it's to accept evidence, it's to it's to discover and articulate evidence to the masses, right? In an evidence-based community, where is the space for conservative thought? I mean, well, assuming that conservative thought is the way that I just defined it. Now, there's some other ways to think about it, like fiscally conservative, right? Not spending money where you needn't. But there's a lot of good evidence to support that. I'm, I think when we talk about conservatives, we are talking about these non-evidence-based, it's because I said so or because this book says so type folk. Is that is that fair? I, I think that uh, I guess the extreme end of that would embody that. I mean, I think <laughs> lots and lots of conservative people, uh, this has nothing to do with intelligence. They can be an R. No, they I mean, can be vastly smart. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying they're I'm not, not I'm smart. not suggesting you're not suggesting that. Yeah. yeah. But I would just go back to your point to the extent that it's accurate, and I think it has a, a, a large kernel of truth to it, that's more the self-selection side, that people are not going to gravitate to an institution. You know, in my social science courses, overwhelmingly liberal. Well, because what are the what are we studying in sociology or social work? How to help vulnerable people? And what, what are the sensibilities that people are going to gravitate toward? I'm not saying conservatives are heartless by any stretch of the word, but that overwhelming or that preponderance of sensitivity that we have among left liberals also links to other sorts of sensibilities and worldviews that are going to lead them to feel alienated, especially if they're more fundamentalist in their religious orientation. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think I'm pretty sure Gross's point that it's overwhelmingly self-selection. It's, it's probably some mixture and it's ultimately an empirical question. And but I difficult guess, one I guess my point is this really discrimination. Are we really saying you're not welcome here? Or are we saying, look, here's the evidence. I'm sorry that you don't have a position that is in alignment with the evidence, but you look silly now in front of everybody because you're just saying because, because I say so. I, I and you're not going with the evidence. Conservative think tanks have, you know, conservative academics in them. Yeah. And they come with mountains and mountains of evidence supporting their positions, mm -hmm. you know. Not their religious positions. No, but there are other conservative positions that may affect some of that. Um, so, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation, um, Cato Institute, I mean... Well, these are all economic and fiscal policy institutes. These are all think tanks that look to better well, heritage is humanity well. Her through heritage is economics. Yeah, we need to be clear in what you're discussing. Yeah, here, please. Because, um, because you're making a blanket statement about, say, the conservative mind. Well, and, yeah. and I, I just want to help you out here, I yeah, think. Yeah, I'm actually trying to parse it apart. I want 
want to say, what do we mean when we say conservative? Because well, I, I, I feel like there's a lot. Social issues. Okay. Social value. Because you differentiated, say, conservative, uh, fiscal, economic ideas, which are probably, you know, I think separate these two things out. I think those are two whole different worlds. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we have to be clear about that. But we're just saying those conservatives and we're saying we're discriminating against conservatives. I don't think fiscally we're, cons- we're no, there's any in, discrimination in, in school. departments, it's my, my understanding, at least in my experience, is it's largely liberal too, even in economics departments. I, I, not that I, I can't treat my survey as the be all and end all. I, I did a survey of economists. Uh, they were the lowest response rate, only 13%. I mm-hmm. sent a, it's every, a dismal sign. <laughs> every, every single economist I sent in the graduate program in the United States, my colleague, my colleague and I sent. And so there's an uh, N of 234. And just to follow up on Greg's point, it's not that they're overwhelmingly liberal. They're the only apparently social science field where liberals and moderates are roughly equal with a very small percentage of radicals and a surprisingly small percentage of libertarians. I, when I came into this, I assumed there'd be a huge chunk of them. And it turns out it's smaller than we think. I think it was about maybe, I don't want to misquote the number, but it's it's certainly not like 30, 40%. It's down there, maybe 20, 25, something like that, are libertarian in their orientation. So yeah, there's lots of liberals. Matter of fact, we define economics as having a liberal moderate core. Those are the two sensibilities that predominate. Yeah, Which is shocking because you'd think it would be like, you know, just from what you hear that it would be a conservative field. But even then, you know, in that academic endeavor, it's still, you know, people who go into it skew liberal. Because they're teaching, talking about academia. Yeah, Not that's an interesting point, economics. right? We might, and we would definitely would expect them to be more conservative. We'll see. Actually, conservative is tricky. More libertarian. Okay. There's not very many conservative. You're talking laissez-faire capitalism, right. libertarian, and they're, right? and they're and they're not yeah. culturally conservative generally. I wanted to um, go ahead uh, ask a question. So I actually got two questions, but let me let me just hit on one. So has this like how has your research been received in the field, like journal reviews and everything? Like where is that going? Yeah, it's been overwhelming because I, I have never had really any attention to my work before. So this has been exciting and intimidating. Uh, massive attention. There's a, a website called Altmetric, which if you go to a lot of most journals nowadays, they'll have like a little circle with a number on it. And if you click on it, it, it points to public attention to an article. So Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, things like this. And it's just getting discussed all over the place. This latest piece I had on, there's another site called ResearchGate that academics use. And that blank slate paper that I had uh, written back in 2014 has been um, uh, read thousands, like, some absurd amount of time, I don't know, 1,500 times or something like this. You know, Stephen Pinker is well-known, wrote a number of pages about it in the afterward to his Planck Slate book. I had um, my sacred victims piece. I don't mean to engage in braggadocio. As I said, I'm surprised oh. surprised by this. Go ahead uh, and name drop a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> but there was a, uh, this gentleman, this researcher in Greece said that the Greek parliament used my sacred victims piece. They were debating like whether they're going to institutionalize sociology. And if, I was trying to find like newspaper accounts in Greece to sort of back it up, but I wasn't able to find it. But uh, yeah, so this is just a lot of attention, and I think I think I sort of accidentally stumbled into some aspect of the zeitgeist. A lot of polarization, culture wars, right? You got yeah. involved in that, or you got sucked into it, or draw, you know, you're kind of taking part in it. I kind of am. The only thing is, I'm if I'm dogmatic about anything, it's about not waving a flag and shaming anyone. I have strong political positions which I will defend and fight, but in this mode of my scientific role, I got to put truth over tribe, and yeah. I got to say, are these things plausible? Got to turn down the temperature because these tribal emotions, by the way, it's 
within our species. This is where I'm an evolutionary biologist at the core. We, it is so easy to trigger. I, there's a very famous study by uh, Henri Tajfel at uh, Bristol University, very famous in the 70s, where he would invite people into the lab and um, they would come in and all they would do is like, you'd look at like some abstract painting by Clear Glendensky and like, I can't make sense of them. And you pick which one you like more and then he would group people and then he would create these like point and money systems or he'd even flip a coin, making it even more arbitrary. So you're in that, you're in the head, you're in the tails. And what he found is that people were again and again willing to take less aggregate wealth for themselves in their group if the other group got less. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like, it's so... So damn them, even if it damns me, it's, right? It's, it's irrational, I guess, from a rational actor model in economics. Yeah, I was just going to say, there, there goes the, we act as rational creatures, the, the, one of the underpinnings of economics. I, I don't know that that's true at all. Well, and I think that's that's really the downfall of economics, is, is that they have that as one of their pillars that they're trying to, that they're trying to, you know... Well, they've made lots of progress. I mean, behavioral economics has grown dramatically. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. even evolutionary ideas are getting integrated now, so... Well, we, we are able to predict people's behavior pretty well using economic models. Not to a not to a T, but you you start paying people Certainly money for things. Large groups of people. Yeah, yeah, Individual yeah. Individual consumers, more difficult. Not as much, yeah. Large group people. Yeah, but uh, that is information not based on rational choice theory. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> no, it's, it doesn't, it's it's weird the way that it that it all works out in the end. But like, let me let me just go back to this. Um, so your work, it's, it's getting some attention. So I'm assuming then that, you know, there's folks on the left and right in the popular press or whatever, the blogosphere, Twitter, Facebook, that are kind of taking your work and, and, and running with it. Like, do you have any examples or how is that going right now? Have you been like misquoted or? Well, I, um, yeah, there is a number of, because I did the sociology piece with my colleagues, Sociology of Sacred Victims, um, we point out just by just reporting the data, there's 2% conservative, 2% libertarian. I mean, it's just minuscule numbers of people on the right in my field. So what, and because I'm highlighting how particular topics, um, because of their moral intuitions, nudge them away from even acknowledging the possibility that things could be plausible, I'm obviously could be interpreted as critiquing my field. I have a more scientific agenda. We're a moral community. We need to figure this out so we can do better science. But that gets lost by people on the right whose tribal identity is to basically we're the right team, they're the wrong team. Both sides do this. It's congenial to them. So I'm, I get these right wing newspapers contacting me. And actually, I, one of them, I, I, I wrote everything by email and I was very polite about in it. Your response, like, here's my, my response. response. I said, I'd prefer to do email to avoid any accidental. I was very polite. Misinterpretation. And and without naming it, they literally misquoted me on a crucial quote, even though it was written. So I write them. I said, well, I don't understand this. And they said, well, it made sense what you were saying. This we extrapolate. You don't extrapolate. I wrote my words yeah. carefully Stop for a reason. between the lines. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, they had an agenda to say, you know, social science, sociology is biased. They're ideological. And, um, you know, I'm as I get older, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm sounding like I'm going to virtue signal for a second here, but as I get older, I'm less interested in like winning an argument in any given moment. And I'm less interested in waving a flag about how I see the world clearly and you don't. And I'm more interested in saying none of us are seeing the world perfectly clearly. And if we have an understanding of our evolved human nature, our, our tribal tendencies, the constellation of emotions that we are equipped on, uh, we, we have a better chance of both understanding the world more clearly and from a political point of view, getting along better to try to make change. I was going to ask, uh, and this, we, you know, we may have to uh, get towards, we're getting, maybe getting towards the end of- Oh, we have time. We have time? I think we do. All right. Well, let me, yeah. uh, let me just ask a, a, a question that may uh, open up a larger set of questions. But uh, why are we like this? So why is humanity like this? I mean, this is obviously not just the United States. You go to any culture and like, you know, we, we group up along, you know, conservative and, 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 and liberal sides. Um, so why, why do we come to these tribes? What's causing this? Is it, is it just the structure or is there, is there something else going on? Like, you know, if it is in a 
us and that's how we are, then why are we like that? And what's going on? I find the most plausible theories of this to uh, connect to evolutionary narratives. Yeah. And uh, there's debate about it. And I can sort of suggest a number of different sources on this and unpack the arguments a little bit to extent I'm, uh, I'm familiar with them. But the basic idea would be that in prehistory, we had to struggle to survive. We had to adapt and reproduce. So what traits would be adaptive? Well, if you have groups in particular regions that may compete for resources, right? Um, well, then those groups that feel a strong sense of unity are going to outcompete the other ones. You know, if they're willing to self, this is kind of classic Darwinism. Um, um, I shouldn't say classic Darwinism. It's more group selection, which is controversial within the field of evolutionary biology. But uh, this idea that you have a lot of people that are self-sacrificing to this group that are feeling a sense of team spirit. Going back to Taj Fell, you flip a coin, I'm already on the heads team and I care about it enough to sacrifice resources. Right. I mean, it's just, it's so easy to trigger it. So why would that mean, what would it mean is those groups that had people more equipped to be tribal literally simply won. They outcompeted the other ones. <laughs> you well, know, to, if they, they killed willing, them, they're by definition would be eliminated from the gene pool, the other group. So, well, they were uh, willing to give up more and they, they were willing to fight harder and longer to destroy the enemy, right? Like if you're part of my out group, I hate you and I want you dead. I want your resources and I'm willing to give up satisfaction and personal comfort right now on a scale that's greater than maybe this other group, right? Yeah. And, and from a prehistoric and so point of view, I'll give up more and I'll punish you more being part of the out group and, in order it, to get the it, upper hand. The yeah. only crucial thing I would add to this is that it makes sense to me to think of this as not anything consciously reflexive. It's just those people who evolved within the brain, strong group, groupish instincts and right. emotions, feelings of loyalty to the group that get triggered by symbols of group identity. I mean, we know that clan societies, you know, a lot of times people think, well, they're worshiping a plant or worshiping animals. It's a little more complicated than that. They're kind of worshiping the spirit of the plant or the animal, but they are that clan. So we're the turtle clan and it's sacred to us and it means, it emotes, it just triggers tremendous emotion. Well, that creates a strong sense of unity and it strikes me, going back to Greg's point, I mean, um, that alone is wouldn't be enough probably from an adaptive point of view. Why would we have contemporary liberals? Well, liberal, why would we have people so willing to like not be as groupy? You know, one of the big themes, uh, if you look at like liberal identity and propaganda, you'll see like attacking, you know, subvert the dominant paradigm. You know, these that was popular when I was in college. You know, you, you, you want to be anti-establishment, you know, the leading progressive magazine that I read quite a bit, The Nation, its motto is like insubordination, right? So that you're going against hierarchy, right? Well, why would that evolve then? Well, you, if you think about, again, this runs the error of like you're just finding what you want to find. Uh, it's hard to test these ideas, but they have a high degree of plausibility. You kind of need people that are going to be able to willing to sort of maybe engage alternative groups. You'll need the liberal to like explore the berries that might be possible that you could eat. Um, there's actually one theory by uh, Avi Tuchman. He's a um, evolutionary anthropologist. He argues that a lot of it has to do with sexuality. He thinks that a core division is between that human groups are going to prosper when you get a when you welcome in new pathogens to build defenses, but you don't want to do that too much. So I don't know if you like the stereotype of conservatives. I mean, in an extreme sense, you'd say incestual, right? You know, like the hillbilly, you know, the very insensitive term, right? Um, to the extent that conservatives stay close to the nest, then the genes are staying the same and you're being protected from pathogens, but you don't want to overprotect because then when any kind of situation occurs where new pathogens come in, it can wipe out the whole village. So there's a kind of group selection argument that Tukman speculates about. He's not saying he has evidence for it, that liberals end up being more interested in traveling 
feeling, exploring. I went, I pointed out the characteristic of openness to experience, which is more prevalent among liberals. That's going to lead you outside a little bit away from the nest. All of those things can lead to bringing in genes from other groups that could help create a more healthy gene pool. All of this speculative, I'm acknowledging that, but it just seems like this is where the story needs to be on what kind of conditions did we face in prehistory? What kind of characteristics will we develop that would be adaptive that would lead to our survival and reproduction? But really, well, where else could it come from? I mean, we evolved to be the way we are for reasons. So looking back into the past and finding out what those reasons might be, even if it's speculative, where else could they have come from? And that's true. There's really no other option, right? I yeah. mean, there's why are we this way? Well, we evolved to be this way. Okay, well, we can we can maybe speculate a little bit about the mechanics or about the speci- specifics of, well, this was an in-group and the ones that were more, uh, you know, adapt to leaving brought in new pathogens and we became immune to them or whatever, right? Like yeah, all yeah, the yeah. things you just said, yeah. that's speculative, but we did evolve to be the way we are. There's no other way that and we came is, to this be is this in, way. This right? is inference to the best explanation. What is right, plausible? Right. And then we try to find other kinds of evidence that would kind of point in a similar kind of direction. Yeah. You know, so... Um, well, like, yeah. w- what about, you know, just, you know, going back prehistory, group survival, there's another, you know, tribe out there, um, you know, we're starting to move closer and maybe conflict over resources. So, you know, sometimes it makes sense to work with them and try to come to some deal. And maybe other times this other group is so threatening or maybe your group is so threatening that, you know, the side is like, no, we need to just wipe them out or, you know, attack them and establish our dominance and make them go away. Um, Could that be this kind of thinking about, you know, sort of like survival of the tribe versus competitors? No, absolutely. And then, but then you have individuals within each tribe that are also competing against each other. There's a famous phrase in evolutionary biology, which is that, um, selfishness beats altruism within groups, but altruistic groups beat selfish groups. So within any given cri- tribe, you might have a selfish person during the war who hides. Well, all the rest get dead and his genes get passed on. Yeah, and economics is the freeloader. Free rider, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and note, and this, will, this is a point that's interesting about conservatives on average. Uh, conservatives are much, much more likely to be triggered by behavior that is seen as like you're not pulling your weight. Yeah, they want to get rid of the whole social safety net because there's a couple of free riders. They well, say, well, people are just taking advantage of it. Well, a percentage of people are taking advantage of it and then some people don't have legs so they need the social safety net right i mean those are real people that need the social safety net and then there are some people that oh, i'm kind of lazy i'll play xbox yeah and, and then go, going they the, want to cut it all out just because yeah and going to the framework that i try to unpack in my papers um that greater tendency in your orientation to, to you know attend you to the free rider might lead you as you're interpreting the evidence to say oh you're wrong paul there's a lot more free riders and the other side on the left who's less into it. No, there's practically none. You yeah. see what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like how we end up interpreting evidence <clears throat> is a function in part of our underlying moral intuitions and the social groups that have reinforced them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on something, unless you guys had something else you wanted to bring up real quick. Okay, I wanted to touch on something. I feel like you've been sort of dancing around it a little bit. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean I'll that bra- in a, I'll brace a myself. Way. Yeah, no, but um, so social justice. And we hear terms like social justice warriors and we hear people getting blasted on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Where do you, where do you see that as part of society? society today? Is it a positive? Is it a negative? Is there a place for it? Do you see it as just frothy crazies that troll just to try to ruin your life after you say something benign as a joke? I see, um, I think empirically, this will be contested. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, th- I see empirically that I would call it left-wing authoritarianism. And okay. I, think, I think most authoritarianism, and there's mountains of evidence for this, the guy Bob Altemeyer in Canada spent his whole life writing books on this, if you're interested. Um, most authoritarians tend to gravitate toward the political right. Right. 
but there's going to be a cluster. Like anything else, all of these are average differences in tendencies, right? You're going to find a highly conscientious liberal and a highly openness to, open to experience conservative, right? Many, 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 many. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you're going to have a cluster of these. They're deeply animated by feelings of the same triggers, like vulnerable groups, right? But they just happen to have a higher degree of tribal identity and sensitivity to authority than most liberals do. And they get a lot of vocal attention in the media. And, and this is a sort of larger political analysis I would make about it. It's congenial to powerful people to draw attention to it as well. Because to the extent that the left is delegitimized as crazy, then the wider panoply of really important policy objectives that I'm going to say we, because I'm going to say I'm, We're on the left. I'm on the yeah. left openly. And I think there's a confluence of factors, multifaceted again, where you have these relatively small percentage of people on the left that do have more authoritarian tendencies oriented to hierarchy and um, loyalty. Yeah, I, I met even people- though that they would claim that they're not, because a lot of these virtue signalers are saying, oh, we're, we're against the patriarch or we're we don't we're against the authority. We do, we want, you know, equality across the well, board this, within their this, virtue uh, signaling through. Not always look at themselves. No, no. I'm, yeah, no, I'm just saying you're saying I, that. But even I, though they're saying no, and I, I would say it's so to, important to make a fundamental distinction between the level of ideology that is being articulated by any group and the underlying characterological orientation they have when they're advocating for an ideology. So I, I went to the left forum last summer and there was a very militant group, maybe like the Socialist Workers Party. And I can't remember the group, but I was outside and I was waiting for a friend and we just got in a conversation. And immediately I, I, I'm a member of an organization called Democratic Socialists of America. And it's a visionary gradualist group, works within the Democratic Party, tries to push it to the left. Many, many years interested. I wrote my master's thesis on Michael Harrington. So anyway, talking to him, trying to make a small conversation. And it was immediately apparent that I was not just wrong, I was immoral. I mean, you're towing the capitalist line. Shame on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, he was aggressive, angry. You know, so when you say, someone can say, like you just said, Paul, well, you know, but we're against patriarchy, but follow what they do. Yeah. They will smash someone who doesn't tow that anti-patriarchal line. Right. You know, Eric Fromm did a, a study in the 30s in Germany. Uh, I don't even know if it was ever published. And um, workers that mouthed anti-capitalist rhetoric, many of them quite congenial to anti-Jew. It was like a pretty easy switch over. Right. So fundamentally, what I would say to find someone on the left is, is a, going back to these core moral emotions, deep compassion for vulnerable groups. That's fundamentally it. And a suspicion, I would argue, and again, on average, of hierarchical and power relations. They've gotten a heavier dose of that kind of anti-authoritarian tendency. But yet, because this is an average tendency, you're going to find it all over the place and a lot of attention to these left. I, first of all, I think they should be critiqued. You know, when someone's deplatformed, that we, it's, it, first of all, it hurts the left. And Charles Murray goes to a college campus and you deplatform them, you scream them down. Yeah. You're hurting our cause, first of all. So yeah. It's not very smart. I would say that at the outfront, outside. Or put a liberal um, professor who invited him in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously a really, really, really bad idea for it to happen. But I also think it's congenial to the power structure to draw attention to it. It's so they're, he, they're yeah. sort of blind to their own authoritarian, authoritarian, is that the right word? Authoritarian mm-hmm. desires. They think they're the authority all of a sudden and they could do it better than the current authority. Yeah. It's surprising how violent they are. It really is. Do you see a place for social justice though? Do you see a place for this Twitter storm that happens when, when people do things that are, that are perceived as bad or wrong? I mean, the Me Too movement being one where, I, where we see a, a movement that springs forth from real harm, right? But it springs forth on social media. This wasn't something that happened. Uh, it wasn't CNN broke this, right? It wasn't one reporter talking to one woman. It was people talking on Twitter and then all of a sudden hashtag Me Too and boom, there it's launched. I wouldn't use the word like or the phrase social justice like to, to symbolize this extreme branch. I'm deeply, deeply, my entire world is committed to social justice and human flourishing. So okay. it, ha- it has a place. I think it's, I mean, as 
somebody who's a secular humanist in my orientation, yeah. I get a tremendous amount of meaning in trying to make the world better. It may be a fool's errand, you know, but I ha- I'm compelled to do it anyway. So social justice is indispensable. I just don't think we do it well when we animate highly authoritarian, punitive, sh- kind of shame-oriented tendencies right, right, um, right. on the far left. And then it plays right into the hands of those on the far right who do not share our values, who do not want a more sustainable world, or maybe they do, but I think from a scientific point of view, to the extent, for example, the far right denies even the existence of climate change, much less human influence on it. I mean, it's such an extremely important topic that we have to confront, and to be able to move to try to address climate change is going to involve tremendous degree of cooperation, trust, coordination, treaties that have to be nurtured, all of these things that involve people working together. The opposite of, I win, you lose. Right, right, right. Um, All boats have to rise here. Yeah, everybody. That's well, the goal. And also, also social trust. We and it, it may sound touchy-feely. We got to work toward trusting each other more. And maybe if we just understood that these people are wired differently, emote differently, there's a whole bunch of people in the middle. Going back to what you said earlier, Paul, that we can reach mm-hmm. and we can work together with. I, I agree that we, I would like to see less of this sort of absurd behavior. I would like to see less of it, of course. I'd like to think that we're better than that as a community. I would. Right. But I got to be honest. I, I'm kind of a free speech absolutist. I I want the crazies to speak. And I want them to speak loud and clear so that I can identify who they are. And I can see these are the people I don't want to associate with or that I'm going to push up or brush up against. You know, Milo is a little different. Milo is like a social arsonist. He's coming in to get banned so that then he can get more attention and then he can give sort of a self-righteous nature to pretty much racists and white supremacists on the alt-right and all these trolls. I mean, he is a very toxic figure. And if I'm a student... I mean, I think there's a legitimate question. Like, do we really want someone like that coming and speaking on our campus? And like, uh, there may be some people, but like, if a majority of students say, no, we don't want that person on our campus, like, do they have a right to be heard? I mean, this guy is really toxic. And like, you could make a strong case that, yeah, he's a, he's, he's a white supremacist. He's a racist. I don't think anyone or few people that I know believe that anyone anywhere, like a Nazi should be able to like go to Harvard tomorrow and give a talk or something. I mean, the issue is if there's a mobilization within a legitimate student organization around a person and the rules are established, we, we should be biased toward always letting them talk. But the response is one, I think this is where we all agree, the yeah. response needs to be one where if it's toxic, simply don't go. If you want to protest, stand in the back and hold a sign. You know, it doesn't yeah. serve your interest to, to scream them down. I think we all agree with that. All right. Well, that conversation ended a little bit abruptly, but it went into free speech absolutism, which I cut out of this conversation and made it into its own episode. So lots of interesting information there to mull over and discuss. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really long episode, so I'm going to make this sh- you know as brief as possible. I really appreciate you guys uh, listening, and if you have something that you want to tell me or you want to respond to this episode, you can do so. My email is earseductionpodcast at gmail.com. Please do contact me and interact with me there. I will be opening up uh, more avenues of contact too through social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and so on. But those will all be... I'm going to launch all those in the near future and I will keep you abreast of when that's happening and how to get a hold of me that way. So in the meantime, thank you so much and this has been Ear Seduction. <laughs>